Well, welcome to Bench Talk, the Week in Science. My name is Dave Robinson, and our show today is about the Kentucky legislature. You know, they've been in session for two months now, and they'll continue in session till the end of March. Well, the Kentucky Academy of Science recently conducted an interview with two of the leading legislative lobbyists in the Commonwealth. The topic, environmental legislation. It's bound to be an interesting session because, don't forget, one political party controls both the Kentucky House and the Senate this session. Republicans outnumber Democrats by three to one in the Kentucky legislature this year. Well, the Kentucky Academy of Science is a nonprofit science society that was established 106 years ago and has always been a strong advocate for evidence-based government policies. And in that spirit, we're going to hear today from Dr. Trent Garrison, president of the Kentucky Academy of Science, as he introduces these two legislative experts. Take it away, Trent. So tonight's show, we're going to focus on a legislation that's making its way through the Kentucky General Assembly that started in January and ends in uh, late March. Uh, with us tonight, we have Lane Bowman and Randy Strobo. I'm going to just uh, turn it over to Lane and Randy right now. We'll start with you, Lane, just if you don't mind, introduce yourself and tell us how you got involved in watching uh, Kentucky science and environmental legislation. Uh, sure, and thanks for the invite, Trent. Uh, my name is Lane Boldman. I'm executive director of the Kentucky Conservation Committee, and that organization has been around since the 70s, since 1975, and we were formed as kind of a cooperative to help environmental groups monitor the General Assembly and keep an eye on bills for them, because as folks know, especially this session, things can move really, really quickly. So I started there about seven years ago, and I've been doing environmental work in Kentucky for probably you know, 25 years now, I think. But uh, the legislature is a whole different animal, and it's, it's always interesting. Randy, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Randy Strobo. I'm uh, an environmental attorney, environmental and energy attorney in Louisville, Kentucky. My firm, and specifically me as the uh, legislative consultant for KCC, so Lane and I work closely together and have been for the past five or six years now. I'm also a lecturer at Bellarmine, the environmental studies program. I've been doing that for about 10 years now and uh, have my own firm in Louisville, been doing that for about six or seven years. But early on in my career, I worked for Tom Fitzgerald at KRC. I clerked there for some time. Then I worked for Hank Grady in Central Kentucky for some time, then opened my own firm. So I've been doing environmental law and policy work, not quite as long as Lane, but for a good 15 or so years now. Well, we're very happy to have you here. The question that I have, what legislation are you following? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I think probably one of the hottest bills we're dealing with right now is SB 207, which is a utility service bill. What it does is it prohibits local governments for, for taking any action that uh, restricts your choice of fuel. And this is a trend that's been uh, happening around the country. You may hear the term beneficial electrification, which is a movement to get all new buildings to uh, be on all electric services. And then hopefully that electricity will eventually be generated by renewables. So there's a movement to, you know, for example, get people to move away from their gas stoves and uh, gas water heaters and other appliances. And, uh, and then of course, prepare for the future of um, electric cars too. 
But as these bills go through different cities, that's making other legislatures a little nervous. And so Representative Gooch has filed this utility service bill that would prevent a city from doing any particular ordinances that would restrict your choice of fuel. So, so that's one we're watching. It's already passed the House and it's now in the Senate. So we'd, we'd like to add some attention to that. Okay. I, I had some questions. I, I had a bit of a hard time understanding that bill as, it, as it's written. So um, I thought I would just take a break just a second and uh, share my screen and show folks that, how to get to this information. If scientists don't always follow policy, you know, really extremely closely. So you can go to the LRC main page and go to the 2021 regular session and you can go to the House or the Senate or there's a bunch of other links here. You pull up House bills and there are 595 in this short session that goes from January through March. <laughs> you, you, you click on House Bill 207 and uh, you can find out more about it. Now up here, it'll tell you the last action that happened. There are a bunch of different steps you know, from, a, from the time a bill is introduced until the time it makes it through committee to the House floor, it passes the House, it goes to the Senate committee, passes that committee, then goes to the full Senate until it's eventually signed for governor. There are a bunch of different steps. It'll tell you the last action on that bill. So you can tell all those sorts of things from, um, from this site, and it's, it's very helpful. Uh, sorry to, to, to jump in and, and interrupt you on that, but I thought it might be worthwhile to, to explain to our members who may not be knowledgeable about how to get to this information, how to find it. Uh, Randy, do you have any any comments about that bill? Sure. So the, another big aspect of that bill is the idea of local control. And what this bill does is it, in, in its first form, it takes away local control from local government. So it's what we call a preemption bill. The state government, the state legislature is trying to preempt the local governments from being able to pass laws or pass ordinances that limits, you know, what type of fossil fuel you can use for energy at your home. So there was an amendment that was adopted and passed. We restored some of that local control to our local government, but the problem still exists that this bill limits the ability for a city to, if they want to go all electric, they can't do that now. And it's also one of those bills that is attempting to solve a problem that doesn't exist. No city in Kentucky has tried to do this yet. There's examples of this happening out West in California and Colorado, where, you know, they're adopting housing codes and building codes that doesn't allow certain types of new construction from being able to connect to fossil gas. But we don't see any of that here in Kentucky right now. So this is a bill that did some good things. Which we, uh, uh, there's no need for it because none of these issues exist in Kentucky as we see them. And, and one other issue is that the sponsors of the bill and, and several people testifying have talked about how we need this because if a city decides to change policies on what type of energy their citizens can use, then it's going to leave people, their stranded assets. They, they have to buy new HVAC systems. They're going to have to buy new refrigerators. They're going to buy new appliances, cost tens of thousands of dollars. And obviously, not even the, the bills and ordinances that were passed out West talk about that. They're talking about new construction. So um, one of those bills that we don't need right now and um, it, it, in the content of the bill itself is, is problematic. So, so did, did I hear you correctly? I was actually, you, you explained that well, because I was going to ask you, you know, in, in a practical sense, if this passes the Senate and becomes law, which, you know, it looks like it probably will, what on a, on a practical level would this 
cause in, let's say, a city or Lexington, Owensboro, Paducah decided that, you know, their city council or whatever voted that they wanted to go all electric, they would not be able to do that? No, based on the way I read the bill now, even with the amendment, uh, the city of Louisville, city of Lexington, or any city, wouldn't be able to do that. Now, the city of Louisville and city of Lexington, as you, as you all probably know, have adopted renewable policies, you know, 100% renewable, renewables by a certain year. This really wouldn't impact that, we don't think, but it, it would, uh, because I think a lot of that is, is more reflected on the electricity that's uh, used by the city itself, not necessarily its constituents. But uh, who knows? Uh, we'll try to figure out uh, what happens with this as we go forward and, and what the legislature tries to do and, and, you know, and utilities in particular. And, and that actually came up in the testimony on this bill. Representative Gooch had mentioned Louisville's resolution on 100% renewables as justifying the need for this bill. So although that's just a resolution, there's, there's actually no real policies in place that there's things that encourage uh, more cleaner fuels, but there's nothing mandating it right now. So, so it's kind of unfounded fears. Gotcha. We have a few questions in the comments. Uh, Julie asked, are there external actors from perhaps outside the state supporting these bills? Uh, well, of course, you know, the fossil fuel industry is, <laughs> has an interest in making sure these kind of bills pass. And, and these kind of bills are showing up in, in uh, several states. And we have one more question here from, uh, from Angela, and we'll move on to the next bill. She says, I am confused as to whether this bill is, is a negative or a positive. Does it protect citizens' rights to choose and or have access to alternative energy resources? That was certainly the argument, that the way it was being posed in testimony, that it was limiting people's right to choose, but it's also limiting the city's right to establish certain codes to manage their resources. So I see this bill as a big negative myself. Okay. Well, thanks for uh, helping us scientists understand legislation because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to read through, the, through those bills sometimes. I think a lot of our members know the intricacies of how, you know, publishing papers and uh, presenting and you know, all that stuff from the hard science perspective, but trying to weed through legislative wording can be pretty difficult at times. So we appreciate you all explaining that. So we'll go on to the next bill. Another one that we had discussed earlier is the House Bill 386, the, uh, the bill on bioaccumulative mixing zone that was up in the House Committee a week or so ago and passed the House, from my understanding. And I believe it was assigned to uh, to the Senate committee today, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about HB 386, what it is, what it will do. House Bill 386 is one of those bills when we saw it, we we're like, well, what the hell is going on here? Where is this coming from? <laughs> and so immediately, you know, when I see that or Lane sees that, well, we we try to figure out where it's coming from and who did it. And because it messes with the ability for the cabinet and the division of water to be able to regulate the way that it has done for the past several decades. We thought, well, maybe this is coming from the cabinet, but it was taking authority away from the cabinet. So we weren't sure. So we reached out to them. They said, no, it's not their bill and, and they're not happy with it. So when that happens, uh, we're like, okay, is this someone, someone in the industry is, is proposing this. And, and that's what's happened. There's a facility in Western Kentucky that's trying to take advantage of being able to discharge into waters of the Commonwealth in a way that allows them to use mixing zones for bioaccumulative chemicals. And Kentucky, for the most part, since about 2004, had adopted policies to prevent that. 
uh, we allow mixing zones in Kentucky. Most states do, and it's allowed under the Clean Water Act. But a lot of people still don't like them because, you know, mixing zones serve a purpose of, uh, you know, typically when you're discharging into a water of the U.S., you cannot violate the water quality standards for that particular water body. What a mixing zone does is it gives the polluter or the discharger a path for the area of the mixing zone. So those levels can be higher in the mixing zone, but as long as you're outside the mixing zone and those levels are okay for the water quality standards for that particular water body, it's fine. So mixing zone is kind of a path, a temporary path. But for bioaccumulative chemicals, the ones that don't really disperse, you know, these are the ones that accumulate in nature through, you know, different species, the other species, the, the bioaccumulants accumulate into their bodies and it causes a problem no matter if it's mixing zones or not. So the cabinet adopted a policy, I think in 2004, that said, we're not gonna allow these anymore. And they did it permit by permit. They didn't pass the regulation because they wanted the flexibility to maybe allow them if certain conditions exist where they could allow them because they want that flexibility. This would take that flexibility away from the cabinet. For now, the cabinet cannot do it permit by permit if they want to limit bioaccumulative chemicals and mixing zones for them, they have to pass a regulation. And that just takes flexibility away from them. The cabinet does not like that. It's a potential violation of the Clean Water Act to force the cabinet to do it that way. And if that happens, there's a chance that the US EPA will take control of that program away from the state of Kentucky again and put it back into federal hands. So under the Clean Water Act, you, the Kentucky and most states have been delegated Clean Water Act authority to issue permits and, and things like that. If we adopt this statute, there's a chance that the federal government may take it away again. Lots of concerns about this bill, not just from an environmental perspective, but from a federalism perspective, because states, and, and especially Kentucky, and all states for the most part, like to have control of their, or their water programs, their air programs. But this has the potential to take that away from us again. As far as the status of this bill, Looks like it passed the House, 72 to 23, and it's received in the Senate. The Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee meets, uh, is it Wednesdays at 11 a.m.? Wednesdays at 11 a.m. So uh, anyone who's interested in watching that committee, you can watch it on KET, KET Legislative Coverage. I was just going to say, and be careful with committee meetings. They're kind of all over the place right now, too. Sometimes they have them, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they schedule them special, it's special times. It's, it's a terrible session for transparency. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. Some of these bills are hitting before the public even has a chance to see them. They've already passed out a committee. And also, what may happen with bills at this time is uh, they may be combined with other bills. So these two in particular have made a fair bit of progress and we'd really like to see them stopped as quick as possible. Okay, good. Well, we'll move on if we don't have any other questions or comments about that bill. One that I just wanted to briefly mention was the fluoridation bill, House Bill 159, which allows local government entities and special districts to avoid implementation of water fluoridation programs that's administered through the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. So my impression is that this is you know, this bill probably won't go anywhere because there's a lot of opposition, but uh, I don't know if you ha- you all have any comments on, on that one. The way KCC works is uh, we, Randy and I pull the bills, they hit every night and work on analysis. And then we run them by our board, which is a 13 member board of uh, really talented people of different expertise. And, you know, their determination was they wanted to support fluoridation. Although I know that that, that issue can be controversial in certain communities or from a scientific standpoint, but, but our board is, is in support of fluoridation. 
Yeah, the Kentucky Academy of Science officially supports fluoridation as well. We put that on our website. Uh, we reached out to the KDA, Kentucky Dental Association, and they had put out a statement as well. So we, you know, we agreed with their statement on that. There are several bills that have been filed over the last few years in regard to plastic ban. HB 260 is, a, is one of those. It, it prohibits a certain amount of balloons that go into the atmosphere. It bans certain types of plastics and styrofoam and that sort of thing. There hasn't been any movement on that since I've been following bills the last few years. Any, no, any thoughts on that one? No, there, there's actually two. Uh, there's a Senate version and a House version, uh, HB 260 and Senate uh, 58. And no, it was filed by Democrats. And right now, uh, none of the Democratic bills are moving anywhere. But it's popular. A lot of our constituents really want to support uh, reducing plastic. So, you know, we appreciate bills like this. We appreciate that they continue to file them even when they know they're not going to move. Uh, and we certainly encourage people to speak out about them. It's a little trickier right now with COVID because so many restaurants are depending upon containers and uh, takeout. So that does make it a little trickier to push plastic bans. But also recycling has been cut back. And so that's, that's a real issue as well. And so, you know, we'll continue to support plastic bans. And I wanted to mention inversely related to that is there's another bill, HB 345, which promotes advanced recycling. We consider that a bad bill because uh, the technology for advanced recycling, it's, it's uh, recycling plastic to plastic, uses a lot of chemicals, uses a lot of energy. You know, it can be a very hazardous process. So as people learn about the process of advanced recycling, they'll, they'll see that there's, it sounds good on on surface, but there's a lot of drawbacks to it. And I'll just add to the advanced recycling is, you know, what, what that bill tries to do is, is exempt advanced recycling facilities from regulation. They're regulated. Great. I mean, we will have a better idea of, you know, being able to control them, but this is, it tries to exempt them. And, and on, on the plastics bill, you know, we see, we didn't see it this year, I don't think anywhere, but in previous years, we kind of, another version of that, kind of the opposite, where it was another preemption bill where the state legislator was trying, was trying to prevent local governments and cities from being able to pass plastic bans themselves. And so we see it from both, both sides. This is a Democrat bill. You know, only one Democrat bill has been heard in committee so far this session in the House, only two in the Senate. So it's a very partisan uh, legislature that we have right now. You know, it, 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 when Democrats in power, it's probably the same way. But, you know, it, it's unfortunate. But, you know, some of these bills, I guess from an environmental perspective, a environmental protection perspective, Democrats are usually the ones sponsoring those bills, and none of those bills are really being heard at all, unfortunately. I know you all wanted to talk a little bit about PFAS bill and environmental protection and a little bit about uh, solar-related bills. If there's anything that we haven't discussed, feel free to throw that in as well. So uh, I guess we'll start with the the PFAS bill, if if you want to comment on that one. I believe it's uh, 559, HBO 559. Do you mind if I mention one other bill first? Because this is something we'd like people to start paying attention to. HB 508, which deals with fuel taxes. There's information in there that also starts setting fees for electric cars. And so we'd like people to be paying attention to that. We've been dealing with electric car fees for a little while in the legislature. None of them have passed yet. And so we we still don't think they're quite there yet. They've They've certainly done some analysis on the right way to charge for electric cars uh, to pay for the road usage because Kentucky relies on a gas tax and obviously that has to change. And, and this bill is better than ones that have been 
proposed in the past, but it's still not quite there. It's still fees that are higher than a traditional gas car would pay. So, so we just want to get that on the radar real quick. Randy, do you want to talk about PFAS? Sure. So PFAS has gotten a lot of attention recently, five or 10 years, primarily because of a really famous uh, lawsuit in, from a firm in Cincinnati that had some issues going on in West Virginia, where they discovered that a, uh, a chemical plant had been discharging PFAS and, and that, dis- that pollutant was causing problems, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line for some of the people in that community. You know, uh, PFAS and PFAS are carcinogens. They cause a lot of uh, thyroid issues and it's really nasty stuff. And the US EPA and the Division of Water and, and the Clean Water Act itself has done a really poor job of, of regulating it. So what this bill does is try to, uh, it asks the Division of Water to pass regulations to have some water protection against uh, PFAS and, and uh, PFAS discharges. So it's a good bill, another bill that probably won't, won't be heard. A positive bill, a, a pretty fun bill is HB 107, and that's the constitutional amendment that would amend our constitution to add a provision that says that Kentucky is obligated to protect the, the environment, to guarantee a clean and healthy environment protect our natural resources, not just for current generations, but for future generations, and to also make it clear that the state of Kentucky, the government, serves as a trustee for these natural resources for current generations and future generations. That kind of relates to something called the public trust doctrine that's been used across the United States for some of these um, huge climate change lawsuits that are going on, still continuing, mainly on the West Coast, but a few happening here on, on this side of the Mississippi River, too. And, and it's consistent with a lot of other states' constitutions. So Pennsylvania has a similar one. Florida has a similar one. And a lot of countries, the United States obviously doesn't, but places like South Africa and places with newer constitutions have adopted these types of provisions in their constitutions so that it's obvious that the environment is something worth protecting. It's a constitutionally protected right to protect the environment. Um, right now, I don't know if some of you know or not, but all of our federal laws related to the environment are based on the Commerce Clause in our U.S. Constitution. And it's kind of flimsy. And there have been scary times in the past where the Supreme Court has almost overturned some of our bigger environmental laws, like the Clean Water Act, because of that flimsy connection to the Commerce Clause. So, you know, any additional constitutional protections to the environment would be great. Unfortunately, this is another bill that probably won't get heard. Yeah, and I'll touch on the solar farms bill that landed, SB 266. It's a really bad bill. What's been happening is uh, there's been a proliferation of proposals for it's called merchant solar farms popping up all around Kentucky. There's like about 20 proposals right now, and it's caught some communities off guard. We did a whole session of this at KCC's annual meeting back in January, and you can find the, the tape of that on our website. But uh, a lot of these companies have learned how to work with farmers on where these farms are being installed. We try to avoid having them on prime agricultural land, but you know there's some being developed in old mine sites. There's uh, and and yes, agricultural land, but now they've developed techniques to um, so where livestock and plantings can coexist with the panels. Unfortunately, one of the early developments that came into Kentucky probably caught a community off guard, and as a result, there was a bill filed just just uh, last week that basically prohibits the ability of prime agricultural land to be used for any of these kind of solar developments. And uh, we're hoping it's just a protest bill, but uh, it would be really bad for the state if, uh, if that were to 
pass and uh and there there's legislators that have these solar farms in their districts that see them as very positive developments so um so we're hoping that one does not move at all and and it's not just prime farmland it's any any property in kentucky taxed as agricultural property you cannot build any type of solar uh, essentially on that property you can't have rooftop solar you can't have you know big solar developments Farmers can't have solar panels on their barns like we see a lot of farmers doing right now because there's a lot of uh, USDA and federal incentives for them to do that. So it, it's very broad. It's kind of ridiculous um, because it'll, it'll pr pretty much stymie and it'll, it'll prevent solar developments from happening in Kentucky. You know, we're way behind on solar anyway. You know, we're missing out. Like North Carolina has a multi-billion dollar industry of, uh, in solar. Kentucky is still very nascent. And this will just destroy whatever, you know, we're growing. We're growing a little bit slower, you know, slowly, but this will destroy any growth that we've had so far. It's a really bad bill. Well, thank you all very much for explaining this stuff. Is there any talk of a, of a bill from our legislature that forbids the state from having things like plastic bans, like forbids municipalities from having plastic bans at the state level? So we, we mentioned that a little bit before. Those are those preemption bills that we talked about before. We, there is none this session that I'm aware of, but they have been filed before where they try to prevent cities from banning plastic. Like we see in San Francisco, kind of the famous uh, example. They're kind of one of the first big cities to ban plastic bags, plastic grocery bags. And there was a talk about that happening in, in some cities in Kentucky. I think Louisville was one of them. I don't know if Lexington was. But uh, there were bills in previous sessions that would prevent cities from being able to ban plastic bags. I don't know of any this session, but we've seen them before. Gotcha. Is there anything else you'd like to, to bring up before we close it out here? Um, just quickly, I'd like to mention that there's a series of bills that were posted that have to do with cryptocurrency or uh, blockchain technology. Yeah. And, and this is something that's kind of hitting pretty fast. You know, for those who are familiar, blockchain's a specific type of database stores data in blocks that are then chained together. It's used a lot in energy regulation. So there's there's been a, a, a movement in some states to bring in these facilities, especially in rural areas, but they're uh, to have these servers that are that are big energy hogs. They generate a lot of a lot of energy. And that's one of the reasons the bill sponsors I think like it. They see it as a way to you know rebuild some energy usage that's happening. So so one of the bills that has uh, been going through was to uh, grant a tax incentive for these kind of facilities um, and then attract um, data miners or uh, uh, currency uh, cryptocurrency miners. The big thing to know is it's, it's, it's a huge, huge energy hog. And, and we hear that a lot of these facilities haven't really delivered on their promises. When you're, when you're dealing with, uh, I don't know how, what we're up to now, probably close to 800, 900 bills or something like that in this short 30-day yeah. session. It's tough to stay caught up. Uh, it, it really is. But, uh, you know, we appreciate the work that you are doing and everybody else, and especially the, the work that's being coordinated and uh, people trying to help each other out review these bills. Because they're, you know, they're written in such a way that you don't always understand what they're trying to say. And, that, you know, that's not a, a knock on any legislator or LRC or anything. It's just legalese speak. Well, so, sometimes the legislators are still understanding some of them themselves. Some of these yeah, are new, con new concepts. That's, that's, they, okay. they don't know half the bills. They, they, you know, especially the environmental bills. It, it's, it's a lot of education that we try to do, and, and we're always lacking. So they're difficult. Yeah, difficult to understand. Absolutely. 
So thank you, Lane. Thank you, Randy, very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And thanks for everyone out there who, who joined in tonight. That was Trent Garrison, president of the Kentucky Academy of Science, Lane Boldman, executive director of the Kentucky Conservation Committee, and Randy Strobo, attorney and legislative agent for that same organization. The Kentucky Conservation Committee is a nonprofit that's been advocating for the protection, restoration, and sustainable use of Kentucky's natural resources since it was established back in 1975. You can visit their website at kyconservation.org, and you can visit the Kentucky Academy of Science website at kyscience.org. You have been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science, where we're helping you stay aware, stay informed, and stay engaged. See you next week.